In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, as I mentioned, we're straying from our study of the Gospel of John here this morning. And last week when I went down to Yoda, Pastor Mark gave me a theme to address. And it was, what's so amazing about grace? And I'd have to give my apologies too to Lisa and to Leah, who both went with me last week because they could hear it again now. But hearing me repeat myself is not a new experience for either of them, so... We're okay. But there was just something about when Mark sent me the theme, what's so amazing about grace? You know, when it was put to me like that is in a question. What's so amazing about it? If, okay, if it's amazing, then tell me what is amazing about it. And, it, and at first it kind of took me back a little bit. And then I thought, I'm going to like this. I'm going to like digging into grace and evaluating my own heart and saying, is grace amazing to me? First of all, is it amazing? And if so, then do I recognize how amazing that grace is? And do I experience that? Do I think it that way? Do I feel it that way? I really enjoyed the opportunity to stop and think through this. And it impacted my heart. And so hopefully it is the blessing to you that it is to me. It won't be because I've spent hours going over it and you're going to get it in. Well, I'm lying if I say 20 minutes, but... But as we look at it, what's so amazing about grace? And you know, one of the first places I started thinking through this was the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And I thought, you know what? There's a clue in that first verse about how to see grace as amazing. And that clue is the very next line. That saved a wretch like me. The amazingness of grace can only really be seen and experienced with an honest recognition of who you are. It's a personal subject. It's a public subject too because it's available to everybody in the whole world, right? And God has poured out His grace. But its you'll never see the amazingness of grace until you see the ugliness of your own sin. And the moment you see the ugliness of your own sin, you see the amazingness of grace. I remember back before I came to Christ for about a year and a half there, uh, I knew some things about grace. Somebody told me that grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And okay, anybody can kind of understand that. But it's not really until you see how undeserving you are. It's kind of like explaining color to a colorblind person. How do you latch on to it? I never really fully grasped what grace really was until that morning that my sin was very evident before me. And then all of a sudden, grace was beautiful. In Ephesians, he's already started talking about it well before he gets to chapter 2. In chapter 1, right at the beginning, he says in verses 5-8, through he predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Notice, to the praise of His glorious grace. 
with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. At this point in Ephesians, he's starting right off and saying, look, God has done an amazing thing in your life as a believer. And he starts listing off those things and he wants you to understand what you have in Christ. And he talks about the forgiveness and the redemption and everything. He's going to go on from there and talk a little bit more about the sealing of the Holy Spirit and the great inheritance that we have as our hope in Christ. He's just categorizing all the things that God has done for us. And and it is all things God has done for us because of His grace, because of what the riches of His glorious grace which He lavished upon us. He's talking about this amazing grace and the impact that it has on our life, that it gives us the forgiveness of sins, makes us a child of God, gives us the glorious inheritance um, uh, as a child of God, and seals us with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then when he gets up into verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And so notice what he's saying, just if we can put that paragraph in a nutshell. He's saying, I want you to see something. I want your eyes opened. I want you to have full knowledge. I want you to really understand Something, And what is it? That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. He says, I want you to know. I really want you to understand. I want your eyes opened so that you can see this clearly. He goes back to the things that he's already listed, and he's already said that those are ours because of God's grace. If you put all that in a nutshell in chapter 1, which it is not stretching things to say, but God is saying that His grace is totally amazing, and you can see that through these different ways that He has poured out into your life, and He wants you and me to have a really clear vision of just how amazing that grace is. And so with that, we get to chapter 2. And chapter 2, verses 4-8 through says, But God starts out with some attributes and descriptions of God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Repeatedly, three times right there in just a few verses, He says all of God's working inside of you, all that God has provided for you, is all because of grace. This is a totally amazing grace. So why do we miss it? Before becoming a Christian, why is it so hard to see? I think there's some hints to it right here in the passage in front of us in chapter 2. Part of the reason it's so hard for us to see, in fact, I think it takes a a work of God, in fact, that's what the passage is saying, it takes a work of God in your heart to open your eyes, to open your heart so that you can see the amazingness of this grace. But how does it describe us? In In the first few verses, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Toward the end of these three verses, it refers to us as being by nature children of wrath. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins and children of wrath before God, then it means that our our standards of righteousness are kind of low. 
So, you know, what we do is we tend to look upon ourselves favorably. And when you say, well, have you sinned? Well, of course I've sinned. But that doesn't slow us down in our favorable opinion of ourselves. Why? Well, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're kind of numb to, the, to our own sin. Because we are by nature children of wrath. And so these, these sins that we talk about and participating in, they're, they're natural to us. They, it's just what we do. And so even though somebody might point out, well, don't you have sin? Well, yeah, but you know, little. And you know why we see it as little? It's because we're children of wrath and we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we don't have the vision. We don't have a righteous vision of this. And then to make it worse, then, then we also have the fact that everybody else is doing the same thing. And so the whole world, and notice what it says. It says that we were following the course of this world. And then down a little bit farther, it says, among whom we all once lived. In other words, it's saying not only are we sinful and children of wrath by nature, but all of us are. Everybody is. And so we're living and growing up in a world where everybody is a child of wrath. And so all the other people's lives, they look kind of like ours. So I kind of fit right in. So, you know, these things must not be all that bad. They must not be all that wrong. But you know what? When we're evaluated, we're not evaluated by the world's standards. We're not evaluated by even our own standards. We're evaluated by God's standards. And God is holy and righteous. And I can't even get through one day with being holy and righteous. I need the righteousness of Christ desperately. And so we live in this world where everybody else is too. And so the sin just gets normal to us. You know, I remember one time when we were when our kids were little for a while, we just got rid of TV. We thought, you know what? They're in formative years and we don't want other things forming them that shouldn't be. And so we got rid of it. And we noticed that when we went over to a relative's house, sometimes we'd sit down and watch TV with them or something. And, but we noticed after being away from it for a while and then coming down into the same shows and sitting down and watching them, there were things that popped up that startled you that you didn't, that didn't before. Why? Because, you know, before when you were so used to watching it day after day, you were kind of numb to it. There was a regular presence there, and so you were used to it. Why do we feel so at home in a sinful world? Well, because we're sinful for one, and it's our daily experience, and so you get kind of used to it. Well, that's why when you look at this passage, it's not surprising that we miss the grace of God because, first of all, we're sinful, and so we don't have very high standards, and then we're living in a sinful world, and so these low standards are reinforced for us on a daily basis. And then not only that, but then we also see that uh, the, the world is, and us are under a demonic influence as well because it says following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so the world in which that we live also has demonic influence and us also trying to blind us to the amazingness of God's grace. And so, you know, it's kind of no wonder that we're blind to the grace of God and we don't recognize how amazing it is. But you know what? In this passage, God in His desire to have us really understand just how amazing His grace is, He gives us three things that we can kind of hang it on. First, what's so amazing about God's grace? Grace is amazing because of my past. In the first three verses, that's what He deals with. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now notice, this is their past. He says, You were Dead. So for a Christian here this morning, you put your faith in Christ, been delivered from your sins. This is your past. It's not your present and it's not your future. It's your past. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, it's your past, your present and your future unless something changes. But he says to the Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice he, he says in which you once walked. That word walked is a very important word in Ephesians. If you remember, he's going to use it a lot toward the end of the book. He's going to use it twice right here in this passage. At the beginning, talking about how we used to walk following the course of this world. At the end, he's going to say we're supposed to walk in the good works that are laid out by God for us. 
But he says, you once walked. It's a little farther down. It says, among whom we all once lived. And then later he says, and were by nature. Were. Not any longer. Were by nature children of wrath. And he says, what is your past? What were you? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This points all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve, you eat the fruit from this tree. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And they ate the fruit. And did they die? Yes and no. In one sense, you expected them to die physically. But God told them, He warned them, He says, you eat the fruit, you'll die that day. Well, they did not die physically that day. God, in an act of mercy, allowed an animal, an innocent animal, to die in their place. And He covered them, covered their guilt, their nakedness with the skins of that animal. And we see the first substitutionary sacrifice that is pointing to Christ. When Christ would come and lay down His life for us. But, the Bible talks about three kinds of death. Right? There's physical death. If you look in Genesis chapter 35, verse 18, you find a description of somebody dying. It talks about their soul leaving their body. That's physical death. But a separation of your soul from your body is physical death. A separation of your soul from God is a spiritual death. And that's what he's talking about in Ephesians 2 here because he says, you, talking to people that were phys- physically alive at the time, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What happened the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit uh, that they weren't supposed to eat from? They got kicked out of the presence of God. They got exiled from Eden. And exile is a kind of a common theme throughout the Old Testament. And Christ is coming to undo that exile. And so from that time on, mankind has been outside the garden. They've been spiritually dead, separated from God, except for God intervening through the salvation that we have in Christ. The third death is eternal death in the Bible. And so we come into this world uh, physically alive and spiritually dead. If we put our faith in Christ, we become spiritually alive. If we come to the end of our physical life and we have not put our faith in Christ, then our death becomes eternal. We become eternally separated from God. But then notice he also describes us as, by nature, children of wrath. You know, a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to bring up that concept of wrath again. He says, but sexual immorality, which is any sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let therefore no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, there's going to be people that disagree with that idea, but don't listen. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. Why? Because we participated in these kinds of things that bring the wrath of God upon us. That's why Jesus would say in John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind is underneath the wrath of God, and only Christ can pull us out from there. Revelation 16.1 Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels go and pour out on the earth seven bowls of the wrath of God. You know, in adult Sunday school we've been studying the book of Revelation and when you get up to this point it's kind of toward the end of the tribulation period and the world is coming up to a point of judgment and God is at that point just pouring His wrath out on unbelieving mankind. God is not only a God of love, He's a God of justice, a God of wrath. Now, there's a whole bunch of passages at that time and other places in the Bible that talk about the wrath of God, but 
to keep it a little bit more limited. It is amazing that some of the descriptions of it that he gives, though. Like in Revelation 19.15, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What a picture that he gives of the wrath of God upon wicked mankind. But you know, that's where the good news of the Gospel kicks in. Because that's exactly why Jesus came to die on that cross for us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Notice, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then also in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, after this passage, when you get to the next few verses, verse 11 and 12, he goes on and points out not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, not only are we children of wrath, but he, he kind of takes the Gentiles and specifically focuses on them, which that would be us as well. And in verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a bleak description. Holy cow. But see, here's the deal. The Gospel's negative and positive. The Gospel's called the good news. But you know why it's good news? It's good news because it saves us from this description. Without hope. Without God. Strangers. Aliens. The Gospel saves us from that. You don't understand the good news until you understand the bad news. You know what? Here's the thing. You don't necessarily feel that just on your own. Like I said, I think it takes God to work in your heart. But let me ask you this. Who are you going to believe? You know, it's kind of like this. I think of my daughter-in-law, Leslie. Her dad went in for something else to the doctor and they found something that they didn't like. So they probed a little bit further and found that he had what you call kind of a widow-maker scenario with his heart. He had one artery that was totally plugged and another one that was like 80% or something like that. I ran into him a little bit later than that and I talked to him and I said, How are you doing? And he says, I feel great. He said, I never, I never felt bad. I didn't have shortness of breath. I didn't have any pains in my, in my chest or my arm. He says, so when they told me how close I was to brushing death, I was really surprised. And they told him, you better get in and have this open heart surgery to take care of this or you're going to die. But he never felt bad. Well, I haven't felt one symptom. So what do you do? Well, he got the surgery. Hello? Why? Because you got a machine there that can look at your artery and say, oh, look, look at all the blockages. Look at all that. I don't care how you're feeling. You know, see, that's kind of some of the things sometimes when we hear about our own sinfulness and the Bible points out that we're all sinners that are falling short of the glory of God. Uh, we don't necessarily feel it. But you know, it doesn't make it any less true. He could have said to the doctor, you know what? I don't know what you're talking about, but I feel fine. And he probably wouldn't have lasted out the year and he would have been gone. Well, it's the same with us. When we get our sin confronted from the Word of God, say, well, you know, I don't really feel like a horrible sinner. Of course not. That's because you, you are a sinner. That's why you don't feel like one. You're used to it. And you live amongst the people like that, and you, Satan's trying to convince you of that too. So, so you don't really... But this is the description it has for us. But now here, here's the deal. Here's the, it's a contrast. Where do we see the grace? We see the amazing grace in the contrast between what we were and the next point is what is your future. Grace is amazing... Because of my past, I have a horrible past. And grace is amazing because of my future. I have an awesome future. He says, remember as we looked in the first part, you were dead in the trespasses and sins, the things that you once lived in. That was your past. 
But in verse 4 and following, we see a transition. He says, but God. In other words, something changed here. But God. He's, he's going to do the same thing when you get to verses 12 and 13. He says to him, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And remember all those things that we just read off. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were dead in your trespasses, but God raised you up. You were at that time separated from Christ, but now in Christ you're brought near. What is so amazing about grace? It's all about this change. That my past was horrendous. My future is incredible. That's the amazing thing about grace. My past is not my future. It is my past because of Christ. Notice it says, but God being rich in mercy. Why is He rich in mercy? Because He overcame my death. He took a child of wrath and made him a child of God. He took somebody that was underneath the, the wrath of God and gave him a glorious inheritance in the saints. It doesn't say God tolerates you because of grace. You know what it says? God lavished upon you His grace. We're not going to slide into heaven kind of under the door just as it closes. We're going to be welcomed and celebrated. That's the amazing grace of God. God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. And then, uh, all, they're all things God did. Notice what He did. It says He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us. See, that's our future. He says you once did this, but now in the coming ages He's going to show the immeasurable riches of His grace. My grandson Ryder told me that he's been involved in something lately. I can't remember if it's something at school or just something he found online. But it's kind of a game and it's, it's spend Bill Gates' money. And they give you like a billion dollars and you've got to see if you can blow it fast enough. That's the game. Anybody up for that? <laughs> a billion dollars. I told Ryder, I said, wow, they're cutting Bill Gates short. I think he's worth $85 billion, if I remember right. And, and Ryder said, you can't believe how hard it is to spend a billion dollars. Well, if a billion dollars is a drop in the bucket for Bill Gates, what is it for God? His is immeasurable. And he says, that's what this is all about. So that in the coming age, he might show how immeasurable the riches of his grace are. And how is he going to do that? In kindness towards you and me. That is just phenomenal. That is an amazing grace. Now, as he does that, there's a phrase that keeps popping up over and over. And it's predominant in the first half of the book of Ephesians. And it's this idea of being with Christ or in Christ. Now, in the first three verses that we already looked at to describe what we used to be, you won't find it in those three verses at all. But in the rest of the verses up through verse 10, you're going to find it six times. And through verse 8, five times. Because notice it says that He made us alive, which uh, I, hope, I hope you caught that the, made, a lot of things that God did for us here are the things that He did to Christ in, back in chapter 1. He raised up Christ and He seated Him at His right hand. And now God is doing what to us? He's raising us up and seating us in the heavenly places with Christ. But notice that it's all together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. The first three verses dealt with who we were in our trespasses and sins. But that little word, but... God, two words, in verse 4, 
begins to focus on not who we were in our trespasses and sins, but who we are in Christ, with Christ. We've been taken out of our trespasses and sins and put in Christ. And that is our new identity. That's this amazing grace. You know, another comparison between the two shows up as well because it says in the first three verses it talks about what we were by nature. In the following verses from 4 through 10, it talks about what we are by grace. By nature, we were children of wrath. By grace, we're saved. That is an amazing grace. Well, then, not only that, but lastly, grace is also amazing because of my present. In other words, right now. You see, we've looked at our past, and our past is horrible. But if we put our faith in Christ, our future is awesome, incredible, unfathomable, immeasurable amounts of grace we're going to receive from God. What about right now? How does it affect my life now? Greatly. Because what God takes us and begins to work in our life and change us from the inside out. He makes us a new person in Christ. And that's what we find in verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, there's that word again, walk in them. Remember at the beginning He says, you once walked in the passions that you used to walk in, the sinfulness. Now you need to walk in the good works that God has laid out before you. We are His workmanship. And so what that means is for the rest of our life here on this earth, while we're leaving our past behind and we are headed toward a glorious future, the rest of our life is a process of growth whereby God just pours more and more grace into our life. We gain more and more strength over sin and temptation in our life and a greater and more clear understanding of the vision of grace that God has poured out into our life. Grace doesn't just save us from the future consequences. It saves us right now. The word salvation in the Bible is used when somebody puts their faith in Christ. Right at that moment, they're saved from the penalty of sin. They no longer have to worry about hell. But you know what? The Bible also has passages where it says that we are being saved. And that describes a process called sanctification, whereby we're being more and more set apart for God. We're growing closer and closer to Him in personal holiness and righteousness. But the Bible also talks about a salvation uh, being our ultimate salvation when we're finally in His presence. The first one is a salvation from the penalty of sin. The second one is a salvation from the power of sin on your life in a daily way. And the third one is a salvation from the very presence of sin. Right now, grace saves us from the power of sin. It helps us to do the right thing at the right time. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and through 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, and it's work out, not work for, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. See, God works within us to help us to grow, to give us the motivation to will and the ability to do of His good pleasure. The Apostle Paul to Titus in chapter 2 In verses 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. See, it's that first part that we usually think of. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Put your faith in Christ. It's only by God's grace that you can be saved. Period. But it goes on from there. The grace is not done with its work at that point. He says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, 
who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, God is at work in your life through the same grace that He saved you with from the penalty of sin. He's at work in your life overcoming the power of sin to grow you up in Him. So our present is also an amazing thing. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, true grace is more than just a giant freebie opening the door to heaven in the sweet by and by, but leaving us to wallow in sin in the bitter here and now. No, grace is much more than that. Grace actually delivers us from sin. The moment you trust Christ, it delivers you from that penalty. As you walk with Him, it delivers you from its power. Ultimately, it will deliver us from sin's presence. But grace accomplishes all those things. So what's so amazing about grace? Everything. Everything. That somebody with my past could have such a future and get to live for God in the present. That is truly an amazing grace.